The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. Welcome to the secret life of cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Hello and welcome to the secret life of cookies. My guest is American restaurateur, chef, and entrepreneur, renowned for revolutionizing the Los Angeles culinary scene. His name is Jeremy Fall. Who is now author of a new book, Falling Upwards. And a bit of housekeeping before we start. All the recipes for the podcast and links can be found on my Substack newsletter at marissarothkoff.substack.com. And you can support my work with a subscription for $5 a month, or if that's not possible for you, you can subscribe for free. And please don't forget to join the Deep State Radio as a member for special perks. Either way, I'm grateful for your support. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. We have a very, ex- I, I, who's the we here? I have a very exciting guest. It is Mr. Jeremy Fall, who has, like, I don't know, like, I think you have Wikipedia. I mean, like, there's so much that you've done, and um, you uh, have created, what, 14 different restaurants. Your first restaurant was picked up by Jay-Z's group. Um you basically have been like the hippest, coolest guy in LA since you were like 16, probably before that, but people just didn't notice as much. That's very kind of you. <laughs> but you've um, also written a book, which um, I have read cover to cover. And really, I'm, I'm so glad you put this book out there. It's called Falling Upwards, Living the Dream One Panic Attack at a Time, which I got to say is a subhead I can um, vibe with. So it's a really, it's really open. It's really honest. And obviously it was an, uh, an interesting journey for you, but I think anybody who reads this book will also find, um, it's not just a book that I, I read about you. It was a book, even as a woman when I think this book is sort of focused more on men. Um, I went, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's one of those kind of books where we stop thinking about you all the time. We also start thinking about ourselves. Was that sort of your purpose maybe? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I, uh, as usual, I am, uh, baking on this podcast. You're, you're unable to join us, even though you are the food guy. Um, I actually am terrible at baking, honestly. You are? Well, yeah, because it's too technical well, I was, for me. I was, yeah, I was getting a sense of that because I think you have a chapter called, and a theme running through your book called Fuck Yo Recipes, yep. which sort of, as I read that, I went, I just sent him a recipe. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> I just made it to the podcast, so. 
<laughs> exactly. So thank you. Um, but I do like, that's where a lot of people fall down with baking anyway, is that they get afraid that they, like, if I don't follow it exactly, then it will not turn out. But as a person who freestyles with food, um, and reading some of the descriptions that you wrote, including there was one of a steak, which until I make that steak, I am not going to be satisfied where you talk about like, what did you do to it? You like baked it in butter and then oil and. Yep. Yeah. Basically, <laughs> I let the I let the cast iron heat as the oven is preheating, and then I mm-hmm. sear the steak in the like very hot pan or the cast iron, mm-hmm. I should say, and then I finish it in um, the oven. Wow! And but there's a butter involved. Oh there yeah, seems yeah. to be butter involved. Yeah, in- there's butter for sure. Yeah, there's always butter. Um, I have a 17 year old son whose favorite food at this point because you know he's trying to put on bulk is eggs. Like I, the chances of me having eggs in the fridge at any one moment are low because he's probably come in and eaten eight of them. And I'm going to show him one of the videos I saw of you making scrambled eggs. Um, before we get into the nitty gritty of your book, can you please tell me that secret of it? Cause it sure looks like it's not going to end. Where's the pan? There was a pan next to you where my son are, made are eggs you, and it's are you, just, are you making them while we're on the podcast? You want me to just tell you how to do it? Um, just tell me how to do it. Cause I, it's the thing I was like, why am I baking? I should be making those scrambled eggs, but tell me what to do. Yeah. So basically I just, I break the eggs. Let's say it's three eggs, um, mm-hmm. three, you know, cubes of butter. I always say you can't have too much butter. So three cubes of butter and then do not season them right off the bat. And I just do, I just do like a pretty much a high flame. And then I don't mm-hmm. let the pan get too hot. So as soon as it gets too hot, I take it off and I keep scrambling them off the heat. When it cools down, I put it back on so the pan doesn't get too hot. And I do that basically slowly. And then at the end, I throw in a, a tiny bit of creme fraiche for them to stop cooking the eggs. And I nice. season them with salt and pepper and chives at the end. You don't have to do the creme fraiche. Though. Like they're still pretty good without the creme fraiche, but that just stops them from cooking. Yeah, I like the idea of stopping them from cooking that way. That's such a good plan. I guess if I only had like cream cheese, I could use that. It just wouldn't blend as well. For sure. Um, I have, I'm making these very, like very fall sort of spicy drop cake sort of things, which you know, you can freestyle with. I mean, there's a lot of room here with a basic recipe. And yeah, I'm going to make those and mix those while we're talking. But um, you have a few alter egos, two of whom I really, um, uh, felt I knew myself. And one of them is Bob. And Bob sort of is with me at this moment as I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, as a, as you um, And who is Bob? Bob is basically a nickname that I used for my, um, for my anxiety uh, that keeps popping up. More like imposter syndrome anxiety. It's just a character that keeps popping up that tells me like, you know, I'm not, not good enough and all these different things. So I decided to to name it so that I could be more, um, you know, more cognizant of that when Bob comes up and, and it helps humanize, I think, the the, the um, anxiety or whatever it is, you know, so. Right. Um, and there's also Alan, who is your full on anxiety. Alan's the, yes. So, so they go hand in hand. Bob, like more is on the imposter syndrome side. Alan's on the anxiety. I mean, they they both go hand in hand. I just wanted to come up with two different names for them, but, but they're basically a way of, of 
humanizing my uh, my mental illness so that like I can, you know, call them out more clearly, if that makes sense. You know, so that like if because I, th- I think sometimes it can get intimidating to be like, oh, hey, this is anxiety or this is a disorder, or whatever it is. But when you say it's like, hey, it's like your annoying uncle or whatever coming into the picture, it's a lot easier to just be like, you know, this person is named this and they're annoying. Yeah, I mean, you also described like mental anxiety disorder as a mental illness. And I think um, that's only recently something that people are willing to call it. I think a lot of people are like, oh, they're just neurotic. Oh, they're just this. But can you talk a little bit about why it really is an all-consuming thing for the people out there? Because I've, I've found myself with two kids who have anxiety disorder, hey, with me with anxiety disorder, and basically like having to go into schools and explain to teachers, like, you know, this is a real thing. They're not sitting here acting this way because they don't want to do the work or they don't want to do this or that. Of course. Of course. I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think it's more intimidating than anything. And I think that's why people freak out about it is because it's very, it feels very intimidating. And I think that's when you, you start to address it. It's a lot less intimidating. Do you know what I mean? Right. Um, the, uh, a lot less intimidating in what way? Like to others or to yourself? To yourself. It's much more intimidating to yourself. So you, there's something that, there was a moment, and I'm sure you've talked about this before, and I know it's it's the moment that kind of kicks off the book where you're like, you know what? Maybe this anxiety is really not something, is something that really is impacting my life. And what was the moment where that happened? I mean, the moment in the book where you were like, where you had this happen. Yeah, I think for me, it was, you know, it was starting to, you know, you always think about it like mentally, right? Because it is mental. Yeah. But then it started to impact my driving. And that's when I was like, shit, like this is, this is like impacting like the way I drive. The way I drive affects other, I mean, not that the mental health doesn't affect other people, but this affects people like tremendously. And it's, it's dangerous. You know, I can't be like driving in, in an un- you know, on unres- like a non-responsible way, you know, and just like, and risking getting into an accident, hurting somebody. Like I was basically like, lo- felt like I was losing control of, um, of like my driving skills. You know, it was like really crazy actually to think about how that's, how that's even possible. Because you were so overwhelmed by anxiety at this point that exactly. your brain wasn't, yeah. Your frontal lobe was, was firing in a way that made it like you weren't doing things 100%. with any critical thought. A hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. So, yeah. So, but uh, so, so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. And you also said you had a debil. you said you had a debilitating cough, which was only sort of funny because this morning I started like coughing like a maniac and I'm like, Oh my gosh, it's affected me. I've read about this fear. I, I mean, this way, this, <laughs> I still have, oh, you do. Yeah. It's really, it's weird. It's like, it's, it's, but now I think it's more of a tick. Like, and now I think it's something that comes back that I have to just keep under control because it's just like sometimes my friends are like, you're doing the cough. Now that I wrote a fucking book about it, every, like the second, <laughs> it's, are you okay? I'm like, yes, it's not that, that I was referring to. This is something else. Right. Especially in the in the time of COVID where like a cough, like yeah. nowadays we hear people cough and we're like, oh my God, do they have COVID? But to your friends, they're like, oh my gosh, is he having an anxiety attack? Yeah. Because that's what your cough symbolized for you. I don't think I was so clear at explaining that to the listeners. But yeah, it was it was basically like a triggered cough, you know, for my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right? Like it was just it was just yeah, it was this weird cough that kept getting triggered. You know? So um 
and I didn't really understand why, you know, and then eventually once I, my anxiety got better, like was more in order, like the cough started going away. Um, you did something that, I mean, I think sort of one of the themes of your book is really about how um, men and, (laughs) but you put the men in mental health. Um, You can take that. It's a great slogan. That's a really good one. That's really good. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. I'll be here all week. Um, The men in mental health, but you do, you talk about really like how, hard it is still to this day for people for men men people to speak out about feeling this way that is there's some sort of still this like like masculinity as much as false masculinity is sort of like as much a for sure. illness as anything right i think masculinity is is really interesting because i think i think it's first of all it's misunderstood like masculinity in the stereotypical sense just means like like strong alpha leader and it's like this very toxic kind of thing that's like i think strength is being able to admit and show your feelings and being vulnerable and being honest you know and i think the more honest you are being being honest is actually a really hard concept like if you think about it being fully 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 honest where you're 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 really divulging your full self and and like that's a really hard concept if you think about it right and i mean being able to muster the strength of opening up like that to someone and being completely honest it's a very interesting concept it's a very but it's also it is a really interesting concept and the question is do you have to learn to open up to yourself first or do you have is it opening up to the other person that gets you there no, it's because that's the hardest thing is to be honest with yourself and recognize that you have a problem. A hundred percent. And that's a very hard thing to realize, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. very hard, it's very difficult to realize that. Um, so, so yeah. So, but yeah, that's a great question. So ultimately when I look at it that way, I'm like, huh, you know, what's the, like, what's, where do, like where does that work start and it really is talking it's like really being honest with yourself being like because oftentimes we'll do things it's weird right like we'll be like oh i like this i yeah no i like this food i like this food right and you're like almost lying to yourself to like impress it or whatever it is but you really know you don't and it's so weird that we're willing to do that like we think we're smarter than ourselves but like you know we've all done this it's like really weird things and i don't i don't understand why we do it but i realized that you can only be, you can only get as close to people as you're willing to be honest with them. That's something I learned in therapy. And the relationships that ensued from just being honest with people about the smallest things, it changed everything. You, people are willing to be- Like, can you, can you- For sure. Yeah, can you give me an example of how that happened? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, like, one of the things is like, you know, talking to friends about, like, my issues- you know, and they're like, you know, they, there's me being like, Hey, I'm going through something. And there's me being like, Hey, this thing is affecting X, Y, Z, right? Like, like there's, and being honest and being open about the specifics. Now I, you know, I think that, I think that there's a way to do it that doesn't, necessarily affect 
you know, your well-being. You, you don't necessarily have to like go around forcing yourself to be honest, you know, to, for like to everybody necessarily. But like, I think the base level of it is like, if you're willing to get close to someone, telling them the truth will pay dividends in the sense that like they'll feel more comfortable with you. And then you're having a much honest relationship than like feeling like you're having partial like relationships with people where you're partially yourself compartmentalized. That's where I think it starts to affect your mental health. I agree with you. Um, it's funny. I was listening to a podcast the other day called if books could kill, which is a great podcast. And they were going over the really popular, uh, dating book from the nineties called the rules. Okay. And one of the rules, one of the rules was like to basically completely hide yourself from a man. It, in, you know, all like if you were a recovering alcoholic, don't mention it to them until you know that they like you. And it just meant makes no sense to, I just couldn't be myself. I couldn't be in a relationship with someone if I had, couldn't be like, if I had to fake the fact that I'm anxious all the time. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's, it's a nightmare. It's like actually a nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you talk about the, I, I this is a, a, a quote from your book here and it says, um, talking about your, therapist or seraphist as you call her uh, says it's common for anxious children to develop self-soothing mechanisms and for me food transformed the world from a frightening unstable place into a universe of infinite and mouth-watering possibilities and boy honey i resonated with that one said the woman who has to talk about like you know, I literally have a podcast where I talk to people while baking because the topics that we deal with most of the time are so unnerving that I find this very soothing <laughs> to do it this way. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And how was it for you this way that you, that food was like from the, from when you were at the youngest has been this thing of comfort for you? It's, it's, I think that, I think that all the things I experienced discomfort from were things that I probably was protecting myself from and like shielding away. Then it was psychological just by fear of like feeling a certain way or being hurt or whatever it is. So I think that like a lot of those things were really just my, me and my, like my own head telling me like to be stay away from a certain thing or, or whatever it is. So I think, you know, once you welcome discomfort in your life, and now I enjoy the things that make me uncomfortable conversation is and everything because it makes me grow as a person. Then I think you, you, you're much more open to the world and you're much, you become much stronger and, and get, you know, having things happen. Right. Um, in order to deal with your anxiety though, you had an option to go on medication and you were worried that it was going to dull your creativity, which I know, uh, it's been a worry for a lot of people that I know when they go on to, cause in your soul, you are truly like you've creativity busting out of you. You're constantly coming up with new ideas. It's why you can be the age you are and have so many fantastic things that you've done in your past with brilliant ideas. Um, so there was some concern on your part about going on meds. Oh my God. I was so, I was so concerned because I thought that I was going to lose my creativity and I realized that meds make you feel more like, yourself um like you just feel like yourself you know so like you just you, you can just like be yourself and not you know the spiral of anxiety goes away the anxiety thought things anxious thoughts so i'd never go away it's really the spiral that's what really everyone 
was bothered by. And medication helps that go away, but you still have the initial thought. And so you really make, um, you really start making better decisions and starting to filter the things that bothered you the most out of your life, you know, because you're not wasting time on this spiral. So I actually never felt more like myself since I've been medicated. It's funny because when I first went on medication myself, thank you very much. Um, which I now will probably tell anybody, um, because it's made a difference in my life. But when I first went on it, everyone had said to me, Oh, well, you'll feel more like yourself. And I'm like, no, me is the anxious person. Me is the person kind of really in the weeds, unable to move about things. I'm, you know, that's the person, the person before medication was my concept of who I was. So to me, being on medication was sort of like meeting somebody different. Yeah. It's, it's, that's actually, yeah, it's actually interesting. Like meeting someone different, like you, when you, you don't, you don't ever feel like it changes you. You feel that it helps you deal with the things that were tough before. And then people are like, well, what if I can never stop taking it? And I'm like, so you're telling me that I have to pop a pill, which takes about one second every day, well, two pills for me, but every day for the rest of my life to deal with 24 hours of the shit show. Like do the math. Like I don't understand why people are so afraid to not be able to stop taking medication. Like I don't want to stop. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to just start brushing my teeth with water either or not wear my glasses because for the rest of my life I have to wear glasses. You know what I mean? Like they're all things that help me, you know, function. Uh, you did how you do. I, like I've said, I've, you know, been through this whole like medication business with a lot of people and never been really impressed with the description that like you either read online or that, um, psychiatrists give you about how these medications help you. And the description I was given was, well, it's like, it's like a, if you can imagine a tree and how it's all like frizzled at the ends with all the different branches going in different directions, when you take the medicine, it sort of sort of trims the ends a little bit. It makes it a little more controlled. And I was like, okay, okay, that works. Until I read your description because your description is perfect and you should sell it to the um, like the people who make Lexapro I'm so sure, they can I'm put sure. it on the bottle. I'm sure they'll love that. <laughs> I'm sure they'll. But it was. The benefit of, and it's really the benefit of therapy and medicine. So nobody write me if you're a psychologist out there. Yes, both, you have to have both. The benefit of therapy and medicine transformed me from being a passenger in a speeding car to being the driver. Really, really works for me because that's the truth. It's like, wait, the anxiety was the guy who, the anxiety was the uh, attitude and the personality before that. And now all of a sudden it's like, no, wait, I am in charge or much more in charge. Yeah. yeah, it's okay not to be fully in charge. You know, I think that's another thing too that we forget. All right, and your anxiety keeps that from you. Um, speaking of the creativity, one of the things you talk about is um, this concept of the loose balloon. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to see the tattoo that you have. By the way, if you can show and it. Ironically, to me. I'm actually getting it touched up today because it started fading a bit. So. Let me see. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I actually, if you saw it today, it would be much less. It's it's gonna be upside down, but it's like. Okay. Yeah. It's like hard. Hold on. It's like it's like this, and then the the loose ones here, but this is like a brain with balloons, and then the loose ones here. I wanted it to be the book cover originally, but that got vetoed. 
So, well, so what can you explain to people what the concept of the loose balloon is? Yeah, it's just like it's basically like you have the balloons or ideas that float around your head, and then there's always a loose one. To me, that's like my crazy mm-hmm. ideas, things that don't make sense, but they inspire other ideas that do make sense. Right. And so you were concerned that like all this medication would be like the loose balloons would all get tied up or popped or something pop. like that. And yeah. that didn't happen. Yeah. It didn't pop. They're it still around. That's for sure. They have not. <laughs> yeah. They have not gone anywhere. I will tell you that. They're actually probably crazier now that I'm on medication. <laughs> and why do you think that is? I mean, they're not crazier. But are you just more comfortable? I mean, no, but are you more, com- I don't mean crazy, like isn't crazy, but I mean like you maybe have more of them because you're more comfortable. You know, I think so. I think that's a pretty fair assessment, to be honest. Like, I think so. I think that's definitely possible that, you know, again, it didn't, it doesn't, it shouldn't affect the creativity. Like it, it shouldn't, you know, like it should not, like your creativity should not be affected by medication. I'm not a doctor. I don't want someone to be like, there's one person in like Nebraska. I don't know if that's right. Nebraska, of course. for some reason, I feel like that's where it would happen. That like... <laughs> That they just like they got affected, but like really though, like it's just it's not. Um, it's it's just I don't see why it would. Again, this is easier now that I've been on it, right? Like before, I was like freaking the fuck out of all the time and everything, but um, yeah. So, so yeah. But I mean, you also you talk about uh, like the creation of one of your restaurants where you have like these brilliant like things on the menu like a um the like the deconstructed reuben that you put in pasta form which is not something you should read about on an empty stomach because it was like i I need to have that right now Um, so i had to do some sort of reuben (laughs) but wait before before we move on please explain to people what this deconstructed dish was before i move on how it is being jewish i was like not great (laughs) um (laughs) no no believe me Tell me something about this Agnolotti stuff with short ribs. Well, basically, just, it was just almost like, it distract was like, us. It was like a car- car- caraway pasta, and inside there was pastrami filled, Thousand Island, and the broth was like a, a whole grain mustard brodo, like a broth. So it's, it was basically like taking the Reuben ingredient. Oh, there was sauerkraut in the in the pasta. Yeah, making it you know in pasta form. Was it so good? It was so good. Yeah. But people at the restaurant were ordering something else, weren't they? The chicken and the biscuit. Yeah. Well, everyone, you know, it's like it's like chicken, the ch- a chicken dish, chicken and biscuits, Caesar salad. All those are basically like I call them like the singles of an of a musical album, right? They're the ones that sell. They're going to make money. They're going to attract people into the the real shit that you want to actually create. But it's what's going to keep the mm-hmm. lights on, you know. Right. The the um, I think you described the pasta as being the B side of a record. Exactly. Exactly. Sounds perfect. Um, so you also, but it's also about like having things like the chicken and biscuit mean that you're allowed to do other and new things. Exactly. So what, so what kind of things has it freed? Like, what are you working on now? I'm working on some really interesting things. I'm working on an organic punk inspired sauce brand. That's like one of the things. I don't know if I've even talked about that yet, but I don't really care. Um, but yeah, I'm working on that. Um, and then, yeah, I'm working on just a bunch of things that bring food together with fashion and music. Like I have, it's a lot of the same mm-hmm. things, but now I'm going for products, experience more unique things. Like what I used to do on steroids, basically. Like what else are you doing? I mean, at one point, so what do you, like, how do you bring food and fashion together? 
for me personally, I don't, I'm not very fashionable because I eat too much food. No, no, sorry. Go on. What? Well, I think, I think, I mean, look, think about it this way. Like Kith in Miami has a Sedell's, right? Uh, you have Emily on door in New York has a cafe. Um, Barney's, you know, had Barney green, has Barney or had Barney Greengrass here in LA. Like there's always been ways of mixing mm-hmm. the two, you know, like together. So I think that, I think that in that sense, they're, they, you know, they both create conversations, bring people together. Um, so I, so there are a lot of ways that they intersect, but for me, I want to really just push down steroids from a creative standpoint, like collaborate with designers on food, where it's not like I'm doing the food, they're doing products. We're both cross collaborating. So that's more stuff like and that. And how, how do we see these like in a restaurant or like one-offs or like, well, you'll have to see, <laughs> you'll have to wait and see. I can't tell you everything. Man. Um, do you often, uh, just a few more questions, but, um, this other part really popped out to me where you said a thought popped into my head, a cheeseburger shaped thought. This often happens when I feel flooded with information. I could have written the sentence myself. Um, what is your, when you're feeling something, you're hungry. Do you find that to be the case still? When you say hungry, like, sorry. Like, like when you're, when you mean you're hungry for things still. Yeah. You're obviously hungry creative as as a creative. Yeah. And um, what else are you like, like literally in your day to day? What are you eating? I you know I really like sushi because it's like fish rice. It's like very simple cuisine. I like simple things. Like as I've gone older, like if I do a sandwich, I usually do like mortadella, mayo, cheese, maybe a tomato, but. I like burgers, no lettuce, no tomato on my burgers. I'm very, I'm a purist when it comes to a lot of these foods, hot dogs. So I'm talking about junk food, but like even like pasta, mm-hmm. a good chicken dish, a good salmon dish, a good steak. Like I've, you know, when you're in food, you get exposed to all these like 15 course dinners and all this nitrogen yeah. and shit. And like, I just like simple food that just like makes me comfortable, happy. I've been like, as I eat a lot of organic and I like, it's, it's funny. Cause I, I'm an Angelino. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, but I fought so hard against that whole trend. I don't see such a trend anymore, <laughs> but like, I was just like, I fuck that. I'm like, eating, you know, but now as I'm older and I, I feel things that go in my body a lot more than when I was in my twenties, I kind right. of was forced to care about what I eat. And then I'm like, I've really fallen in love with that whole aspect uh, of like realizing how horrible what we eat is <laughs> like eating clean, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, does that mean I can't talk to you further about mortadella, which is one of the no, great of course, foods please. in the world? Oh, and no, I, so I under yesterday, so please. <laughs> it's just I think mortadella is one of the most underappreciated cold cuts out there. Yeah, it absolutely is. People are like, it's like bologna. I'm like, there's similarities, but it's not yeah. like bologna. You know what I mean? It's just they're, they're sort of pink, but it's just yeah. not the same thing. Yeah. No matter what happens, and it makes such a good sandwich. I recommend everybody out there eat one. Um, all right. Uh, I will, um, thank you so much for being here today. It has been really nice to have you. And I really hope that you can, um, that a lot of people read your book because I think it's an important step for a lot of guys, um, to get in touch with themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much and have a great day. And, um, thanks for writing this book. Thank you for listening. Jeremy's book, Falling Upwards, is sold in bookstores everywhere. You can also join his one million followers on Instagram.
You can find little old me, Marissa Rothkopf, .substack.com or Marissa Rothkopf Eats on Threads. And if you're hanging around on Threads, you know, give me a follow. Thank you and stay safe and have a great week.